0: in accordance with the principles of doublethink. It does not matter if the war is not real or when it is that victory is not possible.
1: The war is not meant to be won, it is meant to be continuous. The essential act of modern warfare is the destruction of the produce of human labor. A hierarchical society is only possible on the basis of poverty and ignorance principle the war effort is always planned to keep society on the brink of starvation the war is waged by the ruling group against its own subjects and its object is not victory over Eurasia or East Asia but to keep the very structure of society intact
0: second, I'm Stephen Kelly. There are some important life lessons in today's world. War is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength. This life lesson is that these ideas are very, very dangerous to the individual, and that's why today we're going to be talking about 1984 by George Orwell.
1: I'm Thomas Holbrook. I'm Stephen Kelly
0: before we get into this little tome that should honestly be taught in every high school we need to understand the man behind it George Orwell he's the author behind this well known book that's created quite a bit of controversy around the world at the time that it was published and he was born on June 25th 1903 as Eric Arthur Blair. He was born in eastern India, the son of a British
1: colonial civil servant. And what do you know about Mr. Orwell? Well, I know one of the the interesting things about him, and I know this uh, eventually is what led him to write some of the the books he did, was that he, uh, even though his family was uh, like he characterized himself as being um, upper what did he say they they, they were fairly well off um, he actually like had some kind of a, a joke where he would say that he was like lower upper middle class or something just to confuse the whole situation <laughs> but he was actually fairly wealthy and he um, he was at one point he was kind of uh, enamored with some of the journalism that was going around where people would go out and live amongst you know a group that they were doing you know work on and he actually to prepare for a couple essays and a book he eventually wrote he actually went out and started living like a squatter um he in in london he bought uh rags and pretty much lived like he was homeless for quite a while and eventually um it led to him writing a story called, I believe it was Down and Out in Paris and London or something to that effect. And while he was doing his research for that, he kind of traveled around a bit. He went, you know, to Spain during the Spanish Civil War. He got to see firsthand what it's like to be in a, uh, a totalitarian, totalitarian dictatorship. And I honestly think that some of his... Uh, horror that he witnessed there eventually led to him writing some of the, you know, the books he ended up doing, like 1984 and Animal Farm and such.
0: Well, and it's interesting to note for all of you, uh, those of uh, libertarian persuasion out there, and even anarchists, um, he considered himself an anarchist in the late 1920s, according to the BBC though he did start shifting to something else more of a socialist standpoint in the 1930s probably after witnessing uh, unemployed miners in northern England as well as what you're talking about Spain everything else so but at some point uh, he did flee in fear of his life from Soviet-backed communists, which basically turned him into kind of an anti-Stalinist. So, so 1984, in a sense, was was kind of against totalitarianism. And for those who are looking for other works as well, he also wrote Animal Farm, which basically. Uh, stated how Stalin betrayed the revolution, in a sense. And even 1984 has
1: a theme of the
0: revolution was betrayed.
1: Oh, most definitely. I mean, if you haven't ever read it, uh, one thing I kind of wanted to throw in there is that if you have been recently, you know, it might be a little bit of a joke, but if you've been keeping up with current events and you've been hearing about North Korea, um, You know, it's hard to apply fictional novels to real-world situations a lot of the times. But you can look no further than North Korea for essentially what is the basis for 1984. You've got this perpetual war going on that is basically a proxy war. I mean, if you look at it, in in Korea they have situations where uh, they'll have fake air raid sirens go off just to scare people. And then... You know, a military person will come on over and say, it's all clear, we shot those Americans down or something, and there was never any flyover or anything. And it's just to keep power on everyone. You know, they have pictures of the uh, the Kim dynasty up everywhere that they basically worship like gods. And, you know, I, I recently was watching a documentary on Netflix about it. It was utterly horrific because, you know, I honestly you watch something like Team America World Police and you don't realize, you know, it's kind of, they're kind of a joke but you realize, you know, watching actual footage that it's, they're living in you know, an Orwellian society. You know, people might joke around where we are that, you know, oh no, I have to have um, an identification card, here comes Big Brother or something, but, you know, you see actual places that have the exact infrastructure that Orwell laid out, you know, that many years ago in 1949 and it's like holy crap (laughs) it's um pretty much and
0: and no matter what somebody's political persuasion is uh, the, the book itself the plot from beginning to end for some people it's laden in details too much and not enough action but but going past that it's a brilliant piece of literature and and it's uh and for those who may not be comfortable reading certain books like the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which honestly was put out by the Russian Russian secret police and just said, oh, hey, these people over there wrote it just to cause confusion. But for those who don't want to read something like that, 1984 is perfect if you want to understand how to build a police state.
1: Most definitely. I mean, they have... You know, throughout the entire book, you have, uh, you know, our, the main character, uh, Winston Smith, he uh, lives, I mean, he, he, he's a civil servant, and he works for the Ministry of, uh, oh, the... Ministry of Truth. Ministry of Truth. Sorry, I was trying to remember that. And what his job literally is, is, you know, every day he gets uh, letters Or, you know, telegrams, basically, that say what he needs to change in in the history book. He goes in and does, you know, basically edits history to, you know, change things to make it either go in line with what the party stance is or make, you know, wipe people, basically disappear people from uh, existence. And... You know, this actually happened in Soviet Russia during Stalin's regime. There's a uh, there's doctored photographs and stuff that have shown up where people have been airbrushed out of them, and it's just it's kind of like whoa. <laughs> oh,
0: absolutely. Um, long story short, Smith already has committed a thought crime. He goes to an old shop, buys a blank book, turns it into a diary because his flat Victory Mansions um, ironic name Victory of course there is a little crevice that he can sit in that the little telescreen does not spot him they can't see him there
1: Yeah.
0: so what winds up happening is he starts writing this diary down with Big Brother etc etc um and Spoiler alert! Of course, O'Brien. He meets O'Brien, an inner party member. He thinks O'Brien's on his side. Turns out that's not the case. You go to the end of the story. Turns out O'Brien was watching him all along.
1: He thinks O'Brien's basically like the leader of the uh, what was it, the Brotherhood? They call the uh, the they they basically have a uh, a rebellious. Group within the country called the Brotherhood. He thinks that O'Brien is a member of that, and so he opens his heart and basically tells O'Brien, you know, that he's happy that he is having these thought crimes, and you know, you know, he's done all this stuff. He basically just, you know, makes his own bed there, and O'Brien, come to find out, he's uh, he's not a good dude.
0: <laughs> no, O'Brien had already been watching him for seven years. Which is why he had the dream of, we'll meet where there's no darkness. And, well, that's because O'Brien was talking to him in his sleep through the telescreen. And the one question that he, Winston was privileged enough to ask at the time was, you know, is there really a brotherhood? And he's like, you'll never really know that. Mm-hmm. Which basically told me that, really, it, you look at hints and everything else... They have this subversive book where Emanuel Goldstein allegedly talks about how society actually works and gives the biggest debt giveaway of all that all three countries are doing exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. And then then O'Brien indicates I co-wrote it as well as other people. And that's what basically indicated to me that it's similar to what happened in Russia. There was controlled opposition.
1: Yeah. The
0: best way to control opposition is, of course, to lead it. And I have a feeling that it was a counter-revolutionary control valve to trap people, eliminate martyrdom by basically re-brainwashing them, and then... Treating them all nice and everything afterwards, and then finally, when they get to that moment of loving Big Brother, they then kill them.
1: Well, and you look at uh, you know the theatricality of the whole thing. The entire you know at this at that same point in the book, um, Winston questions whether Big Brother actually exists because you know no one has ever really seen Big Brother. They just occasionally everyone just knows that they love Big Brother because they're told to do that, and you know you see pictures of him everywhere and you know he's told yeah big brother's real and he or big yeah big brother's you know a per, he's there but then he questions it further and says but is he like me is he flesh and blood and you know he never really gets a straight answer and you start to realize that big brother's more of an idea you know he's just kind of there to placate people and cuz you know if if let's say hypothetically they were to actually win the war against these other two countries. Um, A little background we didn't really go into is, at this point, uh, the country they're in is basically America and uh, England mixed together. One of the other countries is uh, Europe and Russia, pretty much, and then you've got East Asia. But it's alluded to that if the war actually ends... Then everyone will just be united against you know the government itself at that point. So instead, they don't want that to happen. So they just keep this going, rationing things, uh, you know, perpetually keeping everyone scared, brainwashing them, and so on. And it's just it's to serve the means of the party.
0: And and there was this dangerous assumption. This is something that uh, that. This is ultimately the thing that Orwell warns against, and I and I wrote a review of this book on thenextreport.com. We'll we'll have all the links up in the show notes and everything else. But um, O'Brien ultimately explains the goals of the party. So Winston Smith is one of those that's partially woken up, but doesn't realize exactly how instrumental the whole thing is and this explains that yeah Big Brother is real Uh, Big Brother is all of society because everybody's watching everybody and basically he says this now I will tell you the answer to my question it is this the party seeks power entirely for its own sake we are not interested in the good of others we are interested solely in power not wealth or luxury or long life or happiness power, pure power. What pure power means, you will understand presently. We are different from all the oligarchs of the past in that we know what we are doing. All the others, even those who resembled ourselves, were cowards and hypocrites. The German Nazis and the Russian Communists came very close to us in their methods, but they never had the courage to recognize their own motives. They pretended, perhaps even believed, that if they had seized power unwillingly, and for a limited time, and that just around the corner there lay a paradise where human beings would be free and equal. We are not like that. We know that no one seizes power with the intention of relinquishing it. Power is not a means, it is an end. One does not establish a dictatorship in order to safeguard a revolution. One makes the revolution in order to establish the dictatorship. The object of persecution is persecution, the object of torture is torture. The object of power is power. Now, do you begin to understand me? And that's, and that's the one big thing that's um, Orwell's kind of warning against. That at some point somebody's going to figure out, hey, we can use these as an excuse, but just seek power in the end.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, in like keeping. Uh it's it's been shown time and time again that in these kind of situations in our actual world that whenever you have one of these big scale revolutions, they in order for them to stabilize, they almost always turn into some kind of dictatorship. Because if you look at like what's going on in Libya, you can have a you can have one of these revolutions happen, and unfortunately, if they don't have some kind of person step up and become the the main power involved, it you know people get tired and meet because it's they they're they're sold under the impression that there's this going to be this massive change and it never it doesn't come right away. Everybody gets antsy and then all of a sudden sectarian violence starts happening. And, you know, Orwell does a great job in showing that in order to keep the ideas of the you know the quote unquote revolution true, you basically have to have this stuff go down. And it's it's terrifying because, you know, you look at these places that have had this happen, and the ones that are still around have basically followed this exact pattern here.
0: Um, and, that's, and that's one of the things that we're... that's why you have all of these entities everywhere. Um, from their perspective, fighting the good fight against this type of stuff. And why, when it comes to Cor- the Corian continent itself, north and south when people sneak themselves into South Korea they have to practically relearn how to live in a sense because
1: of all of that oh yeah I mean they don't uh, it's got to be horrible going from something like that because I mean you're constantly living in the fear that you know you're going to do something because Korea Korea, you know it, 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 it sustains from having uh forced labor camps. And if you do anything remotely, you know, seen as some sort of, you know, we'll just say thought crime going with the book, if you basically have a thought cr- crime against the Kim family, you end up having to work in one of these labor camps. And they, you know, let's say you they catch you uh, writing a blog or something and it sneaks out. Um, They can actually take your entire extended family, including aunts, uncles, grandparents, up to three, four generations, and put you all in a forced labor camp. And it's just, that's that's the only reason that, you know, they survive. And because of that, you have these people that have this undying devotion to you know, their ideals, it's because the people that are the most easily brainwashed, you know, even if they're putting on a show to some degree, they're the only ones going to be left. And you really see in uh, 1984, you know, towards the beginning of the story, there's the hate rally that, you know, takes place. You have all the people, they're, they're, they're all in a room watching videos of, you know, the people from the other countries and... The brotherhood and everything and they're all yelling hate and throwing books at the wall and stuff and it's basically you know they're being brainwashed and you kind of see that you know in that that section Winston doesn't want to really he kind of has his doubts about it but because of you know the peer pressure involved and the hive mind going on with everyone else doing it he kind of looks around and says maybe this is what I should be doing basically
0: Um, Julia the person that he falls in love with. Basically, it has a simplistic point of view. As long as she shouts the slogans loud enough, as long as she looks stern enough, you can blend right in. Definitely. Of course, she gets caught too and basically tortured and killed. Slowly, of course.
1: Yeah. And yeah, because when they go in and profess their uh, you know loyalty to thought crimes and the brotherhood and everything they uh their disdain for big brother she's pretty much seen as she, like where she cannot be reprogrammed you know they get rid of her
0: because <laughs> um, like they they speak one final time before towards the end of their life and it just they gave each other up in a sense mm-hmm Because they use... Room 101 basically contains your worst fears. Definitely. And so by doing that, they... uh, (laughs) And that's kind of how... That's kind of how come one has to... You know, overcome their own fears... Before they get involved in any sort of activism. No matter what your stance on anything is... Because that's going to be used against you at some point.
1: Well, yeah, and especially, you know, he had been writing this, uh, you know, th- that diary that entire time, you know, basically going in there and saying, you know, all of his feelings that he was having, you know, talking about how O'Brien, you know, he felt that he could trust O'Brien, you know, and O'Brien, uh, he saw, he you know... He basically, you know, was just completely fooled by the whole thing, and, like, you know, conveniently, when they finally end up catching them, they go in, they get his book, and boom, here's an entire novel of incriminating evidence against him right there, and it's just kind of like he, it took him down,
0: (laughs) And, basically, it wasn't so much the actions that they cared about, it was the fact that he was thinking unorthodox thoughts that that kind of scared them that scared well not really scared them but raised their eyebrows oh we better get rid of this and the whole idea behind what they do is they bring him back over to their side and everything else at the end you know he has a little bit more cushy of life and everything else he goes to a little canteen often they undercharge him for like all the gin that he drinks there Life, quality of life goes up for him until finally there's this catalyzing moment. Tears come down his eyes. He loves Big Brother at last, and that's when you tell he his life's about to come to an end.
1: Yeah, that that scene. Uh, one of the things I did in preparation for this is I actually watched the uh, 1954 uh, BBC production um, that we're gonna have a link to in the. Show notes. Uh, I did a little review for it, but the scene at the end, uh, starring Peter Cushing, is just terrifying because, you know, th- the entire time he has so much emotion, especially towards the end where he's, uh, you know, starting to realize who he is and everything. And at the end, he is just looks dead to the world, you know, and looks up, starts crying, and, you know, says, I love Big Brother. And you're just like, oh, man. Because it's the you know you can tell that he's just been completely mentally broken down at that point.
0: Oh yeah, and and that's the whole whole thing. And if I can find the link to um, a little article online, um, Infowars originally linked to it, but I can't find it at the moment. It's talking about how to be an effective activist, avoiding you know the man so to speak in that sense and one of the things is don't pretend you have no weaknesses because it will be found and that's kind of true no matter no matter who you you know are where you stand on various uh, issues and 1984 should be the first book that any activist reads because it's going to point out any pitfalls that you'll want to avoid.
1: Well, and like, uh, you know, the book can be fairly easily found. It's actually in the public domain in some places, like in Canada. So I wouldn't be surprised if you could probably get it incredibly inexpensively in Canada, if not for free. Cause I know if you went to a Canadian website, you could probably find the text of it on there. Um, if not, you know, in America, I think you said you paid only like $10 for the, the paperback. Yes. Um, but let's say that you you have too much uh, too much work you need to do and you don't have time to read necessarily. Well, there's actually a lot of fairly uh, decent adaptations of this uh, this book out there. Um, right after its publication, they had some radio plays and um, such out there. There's not really. Uh, a lot of that kind of stuff doesn't exist anymore, just because we're talking in the, you know the '40s. Um, the, the The program that I mentioned that I watched was the 1953 uh, BBC production, where they actually ended up uh, starring Peter Cushing. They went in, and the only reason it still exists is that they they, for some reason, they did this with a few programs. They recorded a on film, a television screen that was running it, because they recorded it live. The entire thing's done like a stage play. And, you know, at this time, there wasn't a secondary video market, and there was not VHS tapes, you know. They didn't care about that. They assumed that, like, radio programs, it would just go out and, you know, disappear, and people just remember, hey, I remember watching that, like a stage production or something. But that can easily be found on youtube if you look up you know bbc 1984 then put 1954 most likely you can find the entire movie for free um there's a couple other films of it that i have not seen um but the most noteworthy one was one done in 1984 starring john hurt it's a big hollywood production um it's pretty good uh, compared with the BBC one though they they went for the uh, like the aesthetics of it more so than the actual dialogue and such so I mean even though it's it's a decent version it's trying to be kind of artsy and I would actually recommend the BBC one over it even though it is grainy and black and white and everything Well that
0: that's um uh, that's uh, an excellent one and uh, Steve has a uh, blog of his own AmericanViewBritishScienceFiction.com oh you you, oh, you you have the full-blown domain name now, don't you?
1: Yeah, it's a terrible domain name uh, because it's like 400 characters long but at the time I couldn't really think of anything better to get my point across so I figured go ahead and do it. Um there's no spaces in that. It's, you know, you're writing a book up in the URL field up there, <laughs> basically. But, yeah, it's I uh, I review. I'm really into British science fiction, so I'll, I'll go in there and review, you know, Doctor Who and stuff like that. And I've been recently getting into a lot of this older stuff. Um, that BBC version was done by a man named Nigel Neal, who was famous for doing a television program called Mass, which actually went on. Um, mass is influences tons of stuff. I mean, you have uh, movies done and, like, science fiction programs like, or movies like The Thing are obviously inspired by his writing. So, um, he actually is the one that did that version in 1984. And you can tell – I mean, he's just – he's a great writer. A lot of his stuff is in – like, if, if you decide you want to watch that you end up liking it, you can run by my blog. And I have some uh, little write-ups I've did done for some other stuff that he's done. And That's Neil Nigel Neal K N E A L E. If you want to look him up on Wikipedia or something.
0: I I think that will pretty much uh, wrap it up for this episode.
1: Yeah, and if you end up liking this, uh, let us know because we have some plans to possibly do some more of these. Um. You know, there's a few like Brave New World. We could do V for Vendetta, Animal Farm. I mean, we could. there's a number of books like this that, you know, make you think. They're not, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey, train wreck books by any means. These are, these are books that, you know, at some point, you know, were seen as being subversive or they tried to ban them and stuff like that. And it's, you know, the ideas within them are important ideas. We like to get it out there. Well...
0: Remember to entertain yourself, educate yourself, empower yourself. Visit our website at thenextreport.com. Uh, we are practically everywhere. You visit our site, you'll notice... First thing you'll notice is a little link thing at the top of our site that has links to all the social networks we're currently on. We're on Facebook, Google+, Twitter, and Tumblr.
1: Very nice.
0: And Steve's website again is an American view of British science
1: fiction.com. I'm actually going to put a link to this podcast on there. Um, we'll see what goes down. You know, maybe I've been toying around with possibly doing another podcast. Um, that way we have a couple going for our little network here, but we'll see what happens with that.
0: Well, and the more, the more the merrier.
1: Well, have a great one. Uh, my name's Stephen Kelly.
0: I'm Thomas Holbrook II.
1: Bye bye Thank you for listening to the next report with your hosts, Thomas Holbrook II and Stephen Kelly. Our intro music is from JT Bruce. It's called Plunge into Hyperreality, and it's from the album Dreamer's Paradox, available for free at gemindo.com. Any news clips used are utilized under fair use. And please feel free to visit us at thenixreport.com where you can leave feedback and see show notes.